Exodus chapter 2. When my children were little, we read this portion of the Bible many times. This was our daughter Trisha's very favorite Bible story that she wanted read again and again and again and yet again. Moses hidden in the bulrushes. Exodus 2, verses 1 to 10. Apparently she was not the only one who has found this account fascinating. Terence Frethheim, I think is how you say his name, begins his study of Exodus 2 saying, This story has just the right amount of intrigue, suspense, serendipity, irony, and human compassion, plus a happy ending. This is without a doubt one of the great accounts of biblical history. So let's read it and see what we can learn. The first ten verses of Exodus 2. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could, no, could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. <coughs> when we began this little series, uh, maybe not little, this series, uh, last week I told you my desire was to set before you, uh, as one generation to the next, the wonderful works of God. But here we are, two weeks in the series, and we have a text where God is not even mentioned once. So what could we possibly learn about him from a story that never mentions him? Well, this morning I would like to suggest two things that we learn from this familiar Bible story. The first is this, that God works his plan amid the stuff of life. God works his plan amid the stuff of life. Have you noticed how television sitcoms are disappearing in favor of the various reality shows? I would certainly not endorse all the reality shows that are plaguing television. It nonetheless seems that people prefer unscripted drama to canned laughter. We love to see stories worked out in real life. Well, here we have one of the best. God working his plan amid the stuff of real life. Well, you know the story. It's simple and yet charming. Pharaoh, stymied by two Hebrew midwives who uh, refused to quietly kill off the baby Hebrew boys, 
now makes it a public executive order. Every Hebrew boy child will be thrown into the Nile. We can only imagine the anguish of the Hebrew families. We don't know how well Pharaoh's orders were carried out, but if they were, as is likely, the Nile, which is nothing less than the lifeblood of the Egyptians, became the mass grave of the Hebrews. Well, against that tragic backdrop, we're introduced to a young couple from the tribe of Levi. We're not given their names here, but later in the book we learn that their names, the man's name was Amram and his wife Jochebed. Now they already have two children, although that's not obvious as we begin to read this. They already have two children, Miriam, who's probably about age 8 to 10, and Aaron, who was three, born before this terrible edict uh, came into effect. So this young couple has a, a new baby, a baby boy. They're impressed by his fine appearance. They cannot bring themselves to obey the Pharaoh's edict and drown him in the river. And so they hide him in their house for a while. Well, if you've ever had babies, you know that that is a short-lived solution for babies cry, and uh, they get louder, and they become more obvious. And by the time he was three months old, it, made, it was impossible to hide him any longer. And so they come up with a plan. Now, we're not actually told their plan. We're not told how they thought this would work out, but clearly they had some ideas. They didn't just throw him in the river to drown. First, they made a little miniature papyrus boat, a basket sealed with tar. Full-size boats made of papyrus sealed with tar were kind of a common thing on the river Nile. Placing the baby in the basket boat, they set him in the reeds close to the shore where he wouldn't really float away. Note that this is in technical compliance with Pharaoh's edict. They did put their baby in the river but it also leaves room for a better result, whatever they imagined that might be. Miriam, the older sister, still a little girl, was posted to keep watch and keep track of the baby in the basket. Well, you know the story. Along came Pharaoh's daughter with her servants to bathe in the river. One has to wonder if the parents didn't know that this was her routine. As she walks down the riverbank, she sees the basket and sends one of her servant girls to pick it up. Opening it, she finds a crying baby. And though she immediately recognizes that it's a Hebrew baby, and she undoubtedly knows the edict concerning Hebrew baby boys, her motherly instincts take over and she is moved with compassion for this child. At that moment, with, with perfect timing, Miriam, the big sister, appears and says, do you want me to find a Hebrew woman to nurse this baby for you? Well, of course she does, and off runs Miriam to retrieve none other than her own mother, the baby's mother, whom the princess gladly pays to nurse her newfound baby. And so baby Moses is entrusted back into the hands of his mother, legally now, under the protection of Pharaoh's daughter now, to uh, nurse him and also to train him for the first years of, her of his life until he is weaned and ready to be taken to Pharaoh's daughter and adopted into the household of Pharaoh, who issued the decree to kill him. Now it's interesting to read the various spins that people put on this story. I've read a lot of them this week. Some dismiss the story altogether. They say, well, this is simply a retelling of an old uh, legend from the third millennium BC. 
though there's no evidence of any such connection, and the truth is that mythical legend has very, very few points of similarity. John Calvin, interestingly, rails on these Hebrew parents for their lack of faith and their cowardice and lack of courage. I was surprised when I heard Calvin take off on these Hebrew parents for how wretched they were. Unfortunately for Calvin, Hebrews 11 seems to say that the driving concern was their faith. Another writer sees the parents as uh, hatching a rather clever plan, but a, a risky one, and says that God was lucky that their plan worked. <laughs> Otherwise, God would have had to find a different way to face the future with whatever options he had left. Interesting view of God. But may I suggest that there's another perspective on this account, and that's what we said as our first point this morning, that here we see God working out his plan amid the stuff of real life. God is the primary player here, not Pharaoh's daughter, not Moses' mother or big sister. And God's hand is made even more obvious by the silence concerning his involvement. Now, this is not without precedent. The whole book of Esther is like this. The whole book of Esther, the whole story of Esther, never once mentions God. Does that mean God's not there? Oh, as you read it, you say, wow, isn't this a coincidence? Wow, isn't it a coincidence that just the right things happen at just the right time in just the right sequence? What a coincidence. And after a while you say, this can't be a coincidence. God is working his plan. And so the story is God working in the stuff of life, and, the, and the, the account is filled with the stuff of life, all the vicissitudes of life, all the pathos of life, the brutal edict of a king, the anguish of the people oppressed under that edict, the tender love of parents who see their child as special, the faith that trusts God in the midst of all the hopelessness, the creativity of the basket in the Nile, the royal prince's bath schedule, the motherly instincts of that princess, the quick wit of a big sister, the nurturing love of a mother turned paid nurse, the stuff of life. Amid all those things, though, something greater is happening. And we see evidence of it. We see that this is the case by the many ironies of the story. Terence Freetham points out quite a list of these ironies, which are very interesting. Let me just tell you the ones he mentions. For example, there's the irony of Pharaoh's, that Pharaoh's instrument of death, the Nile, becomes the means of saving Moses. There's the ironies that the daughters are allowed to live, but it's daughters who save the son. The irony that Moses' mother saves him by obeying Pharaoh's orders designed to kill him with her twist on it. The irony that a member of Pharaoh's family saves the one who will deliver the Hebrews and will destroy his dynasty. The irony that Egyptian royalty is counseled and directed by a little Hebrew girl. And the irony that a mother gets paid to do 
what Pharaoh had forbidden her to do paid out of Pharaoh's budget. Oh, the irony of it all. So where's God in all this? He's everywhere. God remembered his people in Egypt. He decreed a plan to deliver them, to raise up a deliverer named Moses to lead them out of that place. And now God is carefully working his plan amid all the stuff of life. And you know, God hasn't changed. Oh, the circumstances of life change daily, often unexpectedly. And we are often as much in the dark, in the dark as Moses' parents. We too wonder, how could God let this happen? But God has not suddenly become powerless, nor is he asleep. Instead, right in the midst of our most impossible situations, unseen and often unperceived, God is working his plan amid the stuff of life. I guess one of my five favorite hymns in the whole world is the one in which William Cooper makes this point. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling and it is indeed God's providence that's in view here in this text. As one writer defines it, God's continued activity in the world for the realization of his plan. That is, God's continuous involvement in the details of the world, in the details of this country, in the details of your life, for the purpose of filling his eternal and wise plan. That's providence. I love the Heidelberg Catechism's definition, providence. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact, Come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Don't you see, that's what this passage teaches us. Even if his name is never mentioned once, God is working his plan amid the stuff of life. Oh, but there's even more for us to learn here, which brings us to a second point that I want you to see, and that's this. 
that God portrays his salvation on the canvas of history. God portrays his salvation on the canvas of history. Now, I'm not an artist. If I draw, it's stick figures. But I'm fascinated to watch artists at work. As an artist begins, the lines seem to make no sense. They often look like random scribbles to me. Why would you stick a line like that there? What is this crooked thing? But as the picture develops, it becomes clear that even those early lines were all designed to contribute to the beauty and the clarity of the finished picture. It's amazing to watch as the picture develops. Well, God is just such an artist. And as he draws over a period of hundreds of years, the full portrait of the salvation that he is working for his people, he draws it on the canvas of history with events in people's lives. Now, at first, some events don't seem to make any sense. They seem like random, senseless acts. But as the picture unfolds, we begin to see how every stroke of history contributes to that final picture. That ought to be a great encouragement to us to see how, how great his plan is to save us and to understand and be assured that even today's events are still fitting in that picture as God portrays his salvation on the canvas of history. Now in Exodus 2, in this account of the baby Moses being saved, I believe we have some pieces of this beautiful picture of salvation, some early brushstrokes of what God is painting on the canvas of history. Now, we, we can get carried away with this kind of thing, so I want to be careful here. But let me mention a few sketch lines that I see here that are related to the final picture. I'll mention four things. The first one is that the deliverance of Moses has a connection with Noah's deliverance from the flood many centuries earlier. We know that because the Hebrew word for the basket boat in which Moses was saved is a word that is used only two times in the Bible. It's used for the little basket boat in which Moses was saved from the water. And it's used of Noah's ark in which God's people were saved from the water. What a coincidence. But you see, God is doing the same thing. This is the same line with different colors. Saving his creation by saving a deliverer, a remnant. God is portraying his salvation with these early brush strokes on the canvas of history. The second one I see here is that it seems that the deliverance of Moses necessarily looks forward to the deliverance of the people Israel from the land of Egypt. According to verse 10, the princes named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. In a kind of scholarly note at the end of his commentary on this section, the Old Testament 
uh, scholar Walter Kaiser explained, I quote, Moses should have been called Mashui, which means drawn out of the water, if his name were to fully fit the explanation. Instead, he was called Moshe, Moses in English, which means one who draws out of the water, almost as if it prophetically pointed to his future work. That is, being the one who drew Israel out of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea. Interesting little twist of language. What's going on here? Perhaps another subtle brushstroke as God portrays his salvation to come on the canvas of history. Well, a third thing. Looking forward a little further, the deliverance of Moses seems to predict the coming of Christ. Christ Jesus would one day fulfill the prediction that's later given in Deuteronomy 18 of one like Moses who would come, only greater. And Jesus too, like Moses, would be spared at his birth as a jealous king sought to kill all the baby boys. And by delivering Jesus from that death, God would again raise up a deliverer for his people. Are all these parallels between Moses and Jesus simply a coincidence? No. Line by line, stroke by stroke, God is portraying his great salvation with greater and greater fullness and clarity on the canvas of history. Well, finally, there's a fourth one that I see. The rescue of Moses from the Nile points us to our own baptism. Many times in the scripture we find water associated with judgment and death. That was certainly the case at the time of Noah and the flood. It was true when Israel came through the Red Sea, which then became uh, a place of death for the pursuing uh, Egyptian army. The New Testament makes just such a connection when speaking of our baptism. The Apostle Peter uh, speaks of Noah being saved through the water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. The Apostle Paul says that in our baptism in water, we are buried with Christ, only to be raised with him to life. So when we are pulled out of the water of baptism through which God saves us in Jesus, it is not altogether different than Moses being pulled from the waters of the Nile as God saved him and through him all his people. Oh, I admit that these are only rough sketches of things to come. These are only little lines in the picture. But if we stand back and see these things painted one on top of the other on top of the other, already back then we could see that God is beginning to portray his great salvation on the canvas of history. Dear folks, we would never have seen those connections way back then, just as we cannot immediately tell what an artist is painting by looking at the first few strokes. But now God's great salvation has been displayed in full view. God has seen us in our distress, as he saw Israel in their distress, in our slavery to sin and death, and God has sent a deliverer, not Moses, but the Lord Jesus, 
the God-man, God the Son, come in human flesh. This This Jesus lived a life that completely pleased the Father, and then for the sake of our salvation, willingly went to the cross and laid down his life as an atonement for our sin. The righteous Son of God, dying in the place of unrighteous sons and daughters of men. And God was satisfied that Jesus' death sufficient atonement for our sin. When Jesus cried on the cross, it is finished. It was finished. Now this Jesus has ascended into heaven where he sits and rules at the Father's right hand. And because of his work on earth, his life and his death and his resurrection, he is now saving those who abandon their confidence in self and trust what Jesus has done to uh, to make them acceptable before God. He saves us not because we're good enough, but because Jesus has been good enough in our place. And what's the sign of this? What's the means by which we who believe pass from death to life, from from, uh, from, uh, judgment to, uh, to glory? What's the means? What's the sign? Well, we're baptized in water. A sign of cleansing, to be sure, but also a sign of deliverance from death and judgment. Now, you may not recognize those early sketches of God's great saving work, but this morning I proclaim to you clear language. Here's the full picture. Here's the final look at God's saving work, which he's accomplished in Jesus. And so this morning I call you to turn away from the sin that displeases God, to abandon your hope and your ability to earn his favor, and to put your trust in Jesus, who will save you from judgment and give you eternal life. This is the beautiful salvation, which for many, many centuries God has been sketching in one event after another, on top of each other, on the canvas of history that we might see it in its completion now that Christ has come and died and risen and ascended into heaven. Sometimes there's more than meets the eye at first. You remember back in the 90s those magic eye stereograms? Everywhere you went, especially if you went to the mall, you saw people standing, staring at confusing looking pictures pictures that made no sense, colorful, but made no sense, until occasionally occasionally someone would exclaim, oh, I see it, I see it, I see it. I think our text is like that a bit this morning. On the surface, it's a colorful story. It's pretty to look at, but somewhat confusing in some ways. But there's more here than meets the eye at first. For though God is never explicitly mentioned anywhere in these verses, if you look carefully, he's there in 3D, right in the center of everything. For here God is working out his great plan to save his people in the midst of the stuff of life. And here God is portraying this great salvation that's come in Jesus on the canvas of human history. Do you see it? Do you see it? Because it's beautiful. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your great salvation. 
Lord, we love this little story. It's just delightful to read, but help us to see beyond just the little story and to see that here, Lord, you're teaching us about yourself. You're teaching us about your glory. You're teaching us, Lord, about your great salvation that now has come to fulfillment in Christ. Lord, help us not to miss the point and just enjoy the story as if it's a mother goose tale rather than see that this is about you, the great God of history, and all your glory is working to save your people for all eternity. And we thank you that you've made that salvation known to us. Give us the faith to trust you and to turn away from everything else and follow Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen.